So this Sunday is the third in our five-week series on the book of Job. 34 of Job's 42 chapters involve a debate about the cause of suffering between Job and three of his friends. Instead of following along in the Pew Bibles, today you're invited to listen to a sampling of that debate. If you wish, you can see the name of the speaker and the verses used on the screen. Let us know, oh, pardon me, let us now listen for what the Spirit is saying to us today. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? Think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Can mortals be more righteous than God? Can humans be more pure than their maker? For misery does not just come up from the earth, nor does trouble simply sprout from the ground. Rather, human beings are born to trouble, just as sparks fly upward. Those who withhold kindness from a friend abandon their fear of the Almighty. This is what you have become to me. You see my calamity and are afraid. See, God will not reject a blameless, blameless person, nor strengthen the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, even though you know that I am not guilty? Should your babble put others to silence? And when you mock, shall no one blame you? For you say, my conduct is pure, and I am clean in God's sight. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for it would double your prudence. Know this, God punishes you less than your guilt deserves. No doubt you represent the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Yet I am a man mocked by his friends. I, who used to call upon God and get an answer, I am a just and blameless man, am now a mocked man. Well, it feels like David has been very careful in selecting songs good for today, so I, I hazard to, to try this out. But I want, to, um, I want to invite us to think about some familiar words and a familiar melody, but in a little different combination. So, you know, if you want to join in, sing loudly, cover me up. What a friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear 
What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you. You will find a soulless there. I've told you before there are verses that I don't always ask us to sing when I pick hymns, and uh, that's one of them because I always have this part of me that says, What kind of friends are those? Do your friends despise and forsake you? But today's story kind of gives us an answer, doesn't it? Um, what kind of friends are those? They're the ones we call Job's friends, who show up for good purposes, who show up to comfort him, who show up to be a support to him in his extraordinary difficulty, right? His story begins as we have been reciting with these horrific series of losses that have been, uh, to put it kindly, supernaturally initiated. And initially, uh, Job's response is to be stoic, is to be unemotional, is to say, uh, God gives, God takes, blessed be God's name. Should we not accept the good and also accept the bad, he says. But, as we saw last week, when Job finally does lift up his concern, his complaint, when he names what's going on with him, I am not at rest, I am not quiet, trouble is upon me, then his friends feel the need to respond. And they begin, as Bonnie named, 34 chapters of poetic debate about the nature of Job's suffering, about the place of God in it. Eliphaz comes first, and uh, I kind of was caught by just a very simple thing that he says, think now. What an interesting thing to say to somebody who is suffering grief, who is feeling profound, deep, overwhelming emotions. Think now. Grief impairs the ability to think. Right? The way we recover from grief, the way we move through grief, uh, does not, generally speaking, initially at least, it just caught my attention. Think now, he says, who was innocent that ever perished or where were the upright ever cut off? What he's saying essentially is good people don't have bad things happen to them. If something bad has happened to you, it must be because you have done something and it is punishment. Bad things indicate sin and sin gets punished in this life. Suffering is punishment for sin. And he goes on, he says, uh, misery does not just sprout up from the ground, things don't just happen. There must be a reason for it, and the reason Eliphaz likes is that human beings are innately prone to sin, to trouble. Human beings do things. So, because of that, don't rely on your own wisdom. 
How do you know more than God? How can you be more righteous than God? How can you question what has gone on with you? Now, we would not generally be so blunt, especially with somebody who had suffered a lot of loss, but we do look for reasons when people suffer, don't we? And we might even say to a widow whose husband died of lung cancer, well, it's too bad he smoked so much. Maybe. We would be tempted, at least, to find that reason as we visited somebody's uh, uh, tragedy. We would at least think about the person who had a heart attack and their fatty diet. And we sometimes can blame the victim. Well, you know, he didn't take care of himself. Uh, well, you know, she shouldn't have been on that street in that dress at that hour. Well, you know, homeless people, uh, a lot of them want to be homeless. We can't do that. We can do that. Now, the truth is Job is aggressive, right? Job uh, is, is, it faces down God and says, let me know why you contend against me. Why are you searching out everything that I might have done? Why are you tempting me to sin? Does it seem good to you to despise the work of your hands, although you know that I am not guilty? That's a pretty strong argument against God. Job is being aggressive. And when people are aggressive about God, it is understandable that people who are believing in God and want good things from God may return that attitude. Zophar does that, right? Zophar is somewhat hostile, which is why I thought it would be interesting to have an emotionalist uh, uh, computer-generated Zophar. Uh, you say my conduct is pure and I am clean in God's sight. Know then that God has given you less than your guilt deserves. Pretty harsh, right? Pretty harsh. But in some ways, it is a defensive response to Job's attack by somebody who sincerely believes in God. And we have to acknowledge that sometimes when we get defensive about God, rather than uh, empathetic to those who suffer, we will at least think certain things. We will quote scripture and say, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or we'll quote the Proverbs and say, do not rely on your own wisdom. It's understandable it's not necessarily helpful. Um, this picture kind of said it to me, you know. Somebody is down and out, and we get defensive, and we're yelling at somebody down and out. Job, for his part, is sarcastic. No doubt you represent the people. No doubt when you're gone, there will be no more wisdom in this world because all of it resides with you, he says. But my friends mock me, despise, forsake me. I who used to call upon God and get an answer. He says those who are at ease, those who don't have trouble. He says have contempt for misfortune. He's probably overstating the case. 
But it is true that when we have not shared in somebody's suffering, we can't know what that suffering feels like. We are removed from it. And we have trouble feeling what it might be like. Not necessarily contempt, but at least struggling more to be sympathetic. These are the harsher exchanges. But to tell you the truth, I am more interested in what goes on with Job and Bildad. Bildad does some of the other stuff too. He does some of the blaming. He does some of the other things. But he also comes faithful and sincere and uh, optimistic. God will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. It will get better. It won't last forever. This is temporary. God will eventually give you joy. This is surely what we do. And for good reasons, right? We want to lessen worry. We want to encourage people. We want to give people hope. It may be an earnest belief. It may be offered sincerely. It may even be factually true. But it doesn't mean it's helpful in the midst of suffering, right? To say to somebody, well, your loved one isn't hurting anymore, is factually true. It may or may not comfort them. It may feel like an effort to paper over their emotions, their sense of loss, their grief, even if it is true, even if we sincerely believe in what we are saying. This response of Job's comes before what Bildad says, but I think in some ways it's a response to everything that's been offered to him. And this is the one that really caught my attention. You see my calamity and you're afraid. It is disconcerting. Suffering is. It unsettles us. It threatens our order. It reveals our fear. And the interesting thing is that Job, the victim of suffering, knows when he's getting that kind of comfort, the kind of comfort that seeks to restore order in the life of the comforter and not necessarily offer comfort. He intuits that. He intuits that fear. It's a common experience of those who grieve to receive very well-intentioned comments from other folks. A list. Um, let us all, myself included, be prepared to have our toes stepped upon. Unhelpful, an incomplete collection of unhelpful statements. Everything happens for a reason. This is God's plan. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It could be worse. At least it's not cancer. You're so brave. Just think positive thoughts. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. At least you have one healthy child. You can always just adopt. Or anything beginning with just or at least. Now, that list is from a book 
that Dee Hernandez gave me a while back. And it's just a really marvelous book. Um, well, marvelous. It is uh, accurate. It is insightful. It is funny. It is irreverent. Uh, I would recommend it to Christians except those who are afraid of naughty words. Um, uh, it uh, has a lot to say, and it is written by Kelsey Crow, a PhD with a sense of humor and also a history of loss. And it's em uh, uh, illustrated by a woman named Emily McDowell, um, whose artwork I'm going to steal for a couple of frames here, so please buy the book. I'd recommend it. And I thank Dee. Uh, I hope she's listening. Uh, so there are some, I think, fake cards in here. When life gives you lemons, I won't tell you my story about a cousin's friend who died of lemons. Not long after Jane and I were married, her mother was diagnosed with colon cancer that would eventually take her life. And a, a stalwart member of the church, an elder of the church we were serving at the time, the son of a former pastor of that church, came up to me and said, yeah, my mother got colon cancer. She was dead in a month. It wasn't helpful, right? Uh, there is a temptation when we hear somebody else's story to tell our own story, and when we're telling our own story, sometimes there's a temptation to try to win the argument. Now, we do that on trivial things, right? You know, we'll say things like, oh, the other day I walked five miles. Well, you know, back in September, I walked 10 miles. Well, you know, you know we'll escalate that way, you know. Uh, parallel conversations, talking about the same thing, but kind of doing our own thing when it comes to grief. Uh, contests don't help. Comparisons don't help. It can be helpful if we have had a similar experience to say so, but to be very careful about trying to um, outrank, uh, compete, win. Please let me be the first to punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. Well, Look at the fine print. You, I don't know if you can see the fine print. The fine print says, I'm sorry you're going through this. See the difference there? When we, uh, when we want to restore order in our life at the expense of somebody else's, right? Things may happen for a reason. It may be completely accurate to say that things happen for a reason. There may be a very discernible reason why somebody is suffering. I saw a billboard once. It said, things happen for a reason, and sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. That's probably not comforting. It may be absolutely accurate, but it's not comforting. In general, telling somebody that there is a reason especially if the reason can't be discerned. Not going to comfort. Not going to comfort. I did up a card of my own, and I, it doesn't offer the fine print. It just is, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, what doesn't kill you leaves you weak and defenseless so it can come back and kill you later. I mean, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe Kelly Carlisle re record that song. I don't know. But, uh, uh, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are uh, a number of very practical considerations that we can make. Dr. Crow names the psychology that underlies many of our well-intentioned but unhelpful efforts. 
Oftentimes, the person who is suffering their grief is in denial, but so are we. The facts may be too painful for us, and so we default to pretending it didn't happen, or we try to figure out some way to minimize the suffering, to say in veiled language or sometimes directly, oh, it's not that bad. At least it's not cancer. See? Um, But it's a form of denial. Offering the hopeful thing in the midst of the tragic thing can be a way of minimizing the suffering, can be a way of denying the suffering. We tend to be prone to that as human beings. Sometimes we project what's going on with ourselves. We attribute our thoughts to someone who doesn't share them, right? To say to somebody what you may absolutely believe out of Corinthians, that God doesn't give us more than we can take. If they don't buy into Corinthians, if they don't believe in God, it's not going to comfort them. It's not going to help. To project our need or our belief system or our sense of order or what we might find comforting will not necessarily comfort other people. We don't want to do projection. We want to do golden rule. But even then, we have to be careful, right? This would comfort me. Therefore, I will use it to comfort you. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Displacement is when somebody else's trauma brings up your own. And then all of a sudden you're in tears because of the loss you had three years before the loss that they are currently very fresh in, right? It becomes our story. It becomes about our emotions. It becomes our loss. And our loss probably isn't going to uh, to comfort them. For me, this should be at the top of the list, but it's fourth in Dr. Crow's list. Intellectualization means analyzing the situation, offering uh, something that is uh, informational instead of empathetic. It's not just my temptation, it is frankly, in a lot of ways, my lifestyle. Oh, you had a significant loss in your life. I read an article about that a few months ago. I mean, I do that every day anyway, one way or the other, with things trivial and otherwise, but uh, I, I, I admit the temptation to do that in more serious situations and have to kind of, when I'm aware, put the brakes on that temptation because chances are it won't be helpful. So the thing to remember when we're dealing with somebody else's loss. And by the way, when we're talking about loss here, we're talking about death. But we're talking about all kinds of losses. Unemployment, divorce. We're talking about any kind of loss in life. Any kind of change. We may very well be talking about what it means to have a virus loose in the world that makes us do church differently. Hmm? What to remember? Uh, It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about my need. It's not about my fear. It's about them. It is not about my pain. Unless possibly, maybe, I've had a very similar loss and can name that loss and then immediately go back to comfort, right? And not make the story about me, but offer my loss. Oh, I, you know, I lost my mother too. How are you doing? How is this feeling to you? I'm so sorry for your loss, right? 
shifting right back to them, acknowledging that you may have similar experience, might possibly have a sense of what it feels like, but then seeking to explore what it feels like. Not for you, but for them. It means letting go of your expertise, right? This is back at me again, right? Where I think I know something and need to let go of what I think I know because uh, what I know is not necessarily going to be comforting. Letting go of my expertise, my classes, my seminars, my reading, letting go of my brain because my brain isn't going to comfort somebody who is awash in their emotions. Letting go of my brain and accessing my gut Accessing my heart, right? And of course, letting go of my need to feel comfortable. My order is less important than their need to feel heard and to feel other than alone, to feel accompanied in what they are doing and what they are feeling. It means that we take grief seriously. Last week we talked about taking mental health seriously, taking mental health as seriously as we take physical health or spiritual well-being. To take grief seriously means to understand that it is a common experience. It is disorienting. It is discouraging. It is scary. And it always, always, always lasts longer than we anticipate. In our own lives, it goes on longer. What we hear from people who have significant grief is, I didn't think I would be feeling this way, blank number of months, years, decades on, right? And from the outside, it always lasts longer than we think it should, right? Employers who give two weeks bereavement leave when grief hasn't even started, hasn't even started in two weeks. I'm not saying the employers are doing the wrong thing, right? But they're doing what they can. But two weeks doesn't even begin the process. Again, it means owning our fear. It means recognizing that uh, we might bring something to our reactions that may or may not be helpful. And instead, it means embodying empathy. Figuring out where somebody else is, finding out where somebody else is, exploring how they are feeling, not demanding that they share their feelings, not demanding that they have the ability to articulate every single one of them, but indicating that we are interested in them, as opposed to expressing ourselves. We will will touch more on what Empathy means next week. But for now, I am mindful that uh, we come together as people who believe that empathy has been made flesh. And so I'm going to get to go back to Facebook and hear what it sounds like when I sing. but not with a dry mouth. Jesus loves me, this I know. 
For the Bible tells me so Little ones to Him belong They are weak but He is strong Alleluia, 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 Alleluia.